call 1-877-669-1292. And I'm Howie Silberger. Welcome to the program. For those of you uh, watching on uh, on YouTube, on Twitter, or on Facebook, thank you for joining us. For those of you listening on the True Talk Radio Network app, thank you for tuning in. We uh, we are heard live every Sunday night from uh, from eight to nine p.m. and then we're heard again on um, well the new show, of course, on Tuesdays and Thursdays at ten p.m. and that is the show you're listening to right now. So thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I have been trying. I have actually been trying to get my guest uh, on the show for, uh, for for multiple years. Uh, the schedules just never matched up. I, I've known I've known Peter forever, and the schedules have never matched up. But I am so happy that radio legend and, and also TV legend, radio and TV legend, Peter Anthony Holder is joining me now on uh, through the through the magic of Skype. Hi, Peter. Hi there. You need to get new legends. Uh, I need to get new legends. <laughs> like really, um, Peter, how how you doing? It's, it's been so long. I haven't spoken to you in such a long time. Just take it easy. I'm glad to hear that, uh, Peter. There seems to be a problem with your audio. I, I'm not. I'm not hearing you. You're not hearing me at all. No, uh, a little bit. I mean, I'm answering you. <laughs> uh, why am I not hearing you? Let's see. Is it my side or your side? All right. Uh, if you're if you're watching on uh, on Facebook, could you just let me know if you hear Peter? Um, because uh, because uh, I'm I'm barely hearing him. But that's okay. So Peter. Um, yes, sir. Uh, it's it's been it's been a while, and uh, and uh, and you've done you've done a lot of stuff since the last time I spoke to you. So you you were the anchor of a of a, of a you were the anchor of the news. You you were the yeah, for about uh, seven years. Yeah. You you were the host of a you were the host of a TV show. Well, I did that while I was still on uh, CJD. You were the host of the overnight show at CJD, and then the uh, then the mid evening show at CJD. Uh, and and then back to the overnight. Show. And then back to the overnight show. Yeah. And uh, and and you are um you are now hosting the stuff file, which is which we hear live right well not live but we hear it right here it actually aired just before this show. On True Talk Radio, and it—it's uh, one of the most popular shows on the uh, on the station. Well, that's nice to hear. Well, it's 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 really it's really nice that uh, that that you allow us to air your show. I, I really thank you for that. My pleasure. I'm, I'm glad that you do it. Uh, Peter, what what got you into radio? Why why radio? I mean, it seems like a weird choice of careers coming from a guy who's been on radio for 27 years. Uh, it, it seems to be a weird choice of career. Why radio? Uh, it's the only thing I ever wanted to do. I, I wanted to be in radios from the time I was uh, seven. Wow. So uh, it was the only thing uh, that uh, I have. Um, I'm, I'm looking at it right now, as a matter of fact, in my studio. I have uh, the reel-to-reel tape recorder that my dad bought in the 60s. And when that came into the house, uh, that opened up a whole new world. Uh, so, so reel to reel. A lot of our listeners won't know what reel to reel is. Uh, what is reel to reel? I, I know what it is because when I started working in radio, we were still working with reel reel to reel. I had to cut tape. But, but for for those listeners who are who are a little younger than us, uh, what is reel to reel? Well, it's it's uh, it's just what it sounds like. It's it's a tape where it's not in a cassette. You it's one reel. You loop it through the the, the cap stand and the recording head and. You put it up to a, a receiving reel, and um, it's a reel-to-reel tape machine. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's really really old technology. Uh, they tried to, but they tried to uh, mimic that technology digitally, and it never really worked. It, uh, it, it still exists, and you can find you can find places that have reel-to-reel machines. What what doesn't exist are the things in between what we have today and what was reel-to-reel. Like for instance. You know, you have CDs now. You still have CDs. You can still find CDs, but it's hard to find cassettes, for instance. Right. Right. Um, you you can even even in, in film, you can still find video or or, or, or real film 
and now you have everything digital, but in between you had things like uh, three-quarter inch tape or television studios. Try and find a player for that these days. That, that's true. That's true. I have a, I have a whole bunch of three-quarter inch tapes here, and I have no way to play them. I have no idea what's on them. I've got a bunch. I've, I've got a bunch of them here, and I know what's on them, but I have no place to play them. Luckily for me, at the time that I was doing stuff in three-quarter, I also had it um, transferred to uh, to VHS. And yes, I still do have a VHS machine. As a matter of fact, I have two. Ah, I have I have uh, I have a few of them here too, uh, Peter. Uh, I never really got to work with you when I was at CJD. I was there for, what, 12 years? I think I did your show three times in 12 years. You did it more than three times. Did I? I, I, think, I, think, I don't think it was more than three times. Three or four times. I can, I, I can go I can go into the files and I can find out exactly how much, how many times you did the show because I kept anal retentive records and still do. <laughs> so I have all that information. It, it is true. I, I remember. I remember when I when I did do Peter's show. Uh, he has this binder, and in the binder, there's uh, there's all these sheets in the binder, and all these sheets have all the information about everything, every minute to minute on the show. It's it's, it's amazing that you keep those kind of records. Uh, there, there aren't too many people who do that. Um, I I don't know. Well, again, again, like I said, I'm, I'm in retentive, so it's probably. It's, it's, it's probably a, uh, a medical condition. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that must have come in really handy when you wrote your book, though. As a matter of fact, it came in very, very handy. Thanks for mentioning. The book is called uh, Great Conversations by Interviews with Two Men on the Moon and a Galaxy of Stars. And yes, it came in very, very handy because I have all the... Uh, I have literally hundreds of interviews digitized to a CD of all the celebrity guests that I did on that old radio show on CJD, so it was, it was easy to go through, and not only do I have all that stuff, but it's cataloged, so I can, I, I can, you know, go on my computer and, and type in a name and come up with exactly what CD that interview was on, so I can go back and listen to all of those, which is what I did when I was putting together the book. How, how weird is it going back and listening to your old shows? Well, it's, it's like hearing them for the first time, because it doesn't make a difference. I mean, you are paying attention when you're doing the interview, but you're also focused on the production of your show at the same time. So you're listening with a, a different type of hearing, if you, if you will. Um, you know, there's, there's nobody like Howie in your ear telling you when the news is coming up at the top of the hour, or we have to go to spots. <laughs> there's, there's, there's none of that. So I actually got to hear it, uh, or hear them, rather, as, as a listener as opposed to a participant. It's, it's a very different... Uh, I, I listen back to all my shows. So I, I finish the show, and I go, and I listen back to it. Because so I like to hear what it sounds like. I like to hear what it sounds like from a listener's point of view. Have you... Um, did you do that during your career, too? Or is that, is that something that's relatively... You just do it when you need it? I, I don't do it. I, I, uh, I saved, like I said, all the celebrity interviews I've done. But at the only time I, I heard them was... Literally, when I was writing this book, which is now, what, two years old? Uh, so, a decade removed from them is when I listened to them. Now, now you've interviewed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uh, celebrities. A lot of them are, are dead. Uh, I've always wondered, um, you know, somebody who interviews so many celebrities, and then you interview them this week and next week they die, uh, is that a surreal experience for you? If it's literally this week I interview and next week they die, yeah, that kind of surreal. It's interesting because I was talking to you off air last week about the the widow of uh, a guest I had on the program, Theodore Bikel. Yeah. And that one was really close. And when I say really close, uh, I last time I spoke to him was in, late in 2014, and he died less than seven months later. Wow. So that one was, you know, like, didn't I just talk to him kind of thing? Yeah. And, you know, so, yeah. Yeah, it's got to, it's got to be a little, it's got to be a little creepy when that stuff like that happens. Actually, it happened when I spoke to you, O'Brien. If I keep saying names now, maybe I won't get any more guests because they're afraid they're gonna die. <laughs> I, I had that for a while too. I, 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 uh, I would interview somebody, and then a week later they would die, and uh, it happened three times in a row on my show. And it was, it was like a week span between my interview and their death. And, and then for, for months, I couldn't get people to come onto the show. It, it, oh, it, thanks I, for having me, bye. <laughs> like a true story. I mean, it, it was just so strange. And, um, 
but I mean, you know, that's life. You never know when it's going to end. Yeah. Now, now, how different was it uh, when you were on television? Uh, suddenly you had the face recognition. On radio, you don't get that face recognition. They recognize your voice, but, but not really your face. Uh, did, did life change when you got onto television? I actually prefer radio for that very reason. I, I, I love my anonymity. I've always loved my anonymity. So uh, being on the radio, uh, to paraphrase uh, an actor in the United States, um, I could go around incognito. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of that, uh, did that get in the way uh, when you started your career? Oh, absolutely. Well, let me, let me, let me rephrase that. It got into other people's way. It never, never gotten in mine. Right, of course. It, yeah, I, I, it, it may have been a problem for others, but I didn't care. <laughs> uh, but, but did it hold, back you, did it hold you back career-wise? No, I don't think so. Because, because I, I, when I started at CJD, I, I was originally um, supposed to be hired to work in the newsroom, and they ended up putting me in the technical department for various reasons. And one of the reasons they put me in the technical department was when I met with the with, with, with late Gord Sinclair, uh, he said to me, hmm, is that a yarmulke on your head? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, how are you going to cover a Martian attack on Friday nights if you're wearing a yarmulke? And I said, can't we cross that bridge when we get to it? And he said, well, no, no, no. Is, is he saying that, uh, that uh, Martians wouldn't attack on the Sabbath? Uh, I, I, maybe, 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 maybe that's what he was suggesting. It's possible. Uh, you know what? That, that was Gord. And when I say that was Gord, um, there is something about Gord that was extremely lovable. And I say that because, and, and, and Gord used to take, I don't know if you ever had an opportunity to go to lunch with Gord, did you? No, no. Because uh, after after that conversation, I really had very little to do with him. Not on my part. That I, I really wanted to, but he, he really didn't want anything to do with me. So. Because Gord, Gord was somebody who used to take everyone to lunch, at least. Once a year, you got to lunch with Gord. And he was the kind of person who, uh, just as you described it, he had no filter. And there was something refreshing about Gord not having any filter. And the one thing, you could talk to Gord about anything, and uh, except one. And I found it ironic because the one thing Gord never wanted to talk about was his father, Gord Sinclair Sr. And I, I found that fascinating because Gord Sr. and Gord Jr. were literally two peas from the same pod. They were so much alike. And I had the, 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 the pleasure of having at one time worked with Gord Sr., uh, he came to Montreal as part of the CFRB crew during the night of the, of the first referendum in Quebec. And I don't know if you ever watched Gord Sr. when he was on shows like Front Page, Front, Front Page Challenge, but he was an absolute curmudgeon. And Gord Jr. was a chip off the old block, but the two of them did not get along. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's actually really interesting. You know, I, I would sit and have conversations with Gord, and Gord, Gord would say things, like, especially when we go to lunch, and you're going to lunch, you're in a restaurant, and there are people all around, and Gord's voice is very recognizable, and he'd say a whole bunch of things, including about race, including about mine, and it never bothered me, but I'd look around going, is anybody else hearing this? Like, is this going to, is, is, is this going to be, like, overheard the next table conversation kind of thing? Because that's just who Gord was. Yeah, and that, you know, I, I experienced it firsthand. It was, it was, it was, it was fun. Uh, it was fun, but it held back my career for for years. <laughs> um, another another one that 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 also noticed the uh, the yarmulke on my head was uh, with Rod Dior. and uh, I was um, I was recording his commentary one day when he uh, when he looked over and he says, I "Don't see very many yarmulkes in radio." I was like, "You don't you don't see very much in radio." I mean, you know, you hear on radio, yeah. So. Uh, it, so, so that, that's why I was curious. Uh, that's why I was curious if, if skin color ever got in the way of, of your advancements, if you, ever, if you ever did not get the job because of your color. No. Well, you're lucky. I don't think luck has anything to do with it. I think it's just persistence. Okay, that too. So, so you just drove through it. That was it. That was, you know, you didn't care about it and whatever. Let's just go. It was, it was, like I said, it was never a concern of mine. Um, okay, so... So you you um you hosted the overnight show on CJD for what twenty odd years? Yeah, it's a long time to be hosting the overnight show. Nineteen, yeah, just a little yeah. twenty. 
And uh, you, you had a great show. Really, I loved your show. And I, I think I worked on, uh, I think you're right. I think I, wor- I didn't work on your overnight show, but I worked with you on New Year's a couple of years, a few yeah. years. Yeah. And that New Year's show was probably the best radio New Year's show I've ever heard anywhere, ever. Well, thank you. It was the, uh, I used to refer to it as the anti-party party. It, it really was. Um, uh, you know, when, when I was a kid, um, there was, I mean, nowadays you see people like Ryan Seacrest and the balls dropping in New York City, and you see other networks in the United States have different shows. When I was a kid, CBS used to have Guy Lombardo and the Royal Canadians live from the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York. And they'd have this big fancy party and people would be dressed to the nines. And I was a kid watching this thing and all I got, the, the, the impression I got while watching this show was, um, and I, again, I'm a kid, so it's not like I could go out for a New Year's Eve party, so that wasn't an option, right? Right. Nor did I want to go out. But the impression I got watching the show was, we are having a wonderful time. Not just having a wonderful time. We're, we are, and you're not. <laughs> I, 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 that's the impression I got watching these shows. And I thought, why don't we do an anti-party party on the radio? In other words, the only way it can be a party is if people participate. So that's how that overnight Christmas, New Year's Eve show came to be. And the coolest part about that show was uh, was your phone calls around the world. So as 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 midnight hit around the world, you just called random people around the world. That was that was really cool. I, I remember even listening to it before I uh, before I started working at CJD. Even listening to that show because uh, I, I always thought that was my New Year's uh, listening to Peter Anthony Holder. And, and some years that show was very long. Sometimes I would start at eight o'clock in the morning, eight o'clock in the evening rather, and go till four or five in the morning. So. It was an eight or nine hour show. Yeah, crazy. Crazy. Well, uh, when it comes I, I, love, I love doing it. The, you know, the one thing is, it, it goes back to the first year I was on CJD at Christmas time. And they wanted, they wanted all the announcers to do voice tracks for Christmas Day so that you could do the voice tracks and, and, uh, have somebody at the, at the station just roll the music because that's what we played a lot of Christmas music. And I was the only announcer back then who refused to do a voice track because I thought there are a lot of lonely people out there during the holidays. And the one time they need to hear a voice that is live, that is giving a current time check and giving a, uh, the, the, the temperature to, so that you know that this person is actually there, is Christmas and New Year's. That's true. So I, I refused to do the voice I would come in. Gord would say, you can do the voice track and spend time with your family. I said, well, you only want me to do two hours. I'll come in and do two hours, and then I can go home with my family. They can find me missing for two hours. <laughs> it's not like they're going to put me on a milk carton after three. Did you find that people were calling in during the holidays, that, uh, that you were talking to people? Yeah, and, and, and again, this is back in the time when... You know, on Christmas Day, we were just playing music, so it's not like we were taking calls on the air, but people would call off the air, and I would answer the phone while music is playing, and and they just want to make sure you're there, you know? I worked every Christmas uh, for, for, for 12 years at CJD or Shom or... Uh, or, or that, that'll happen when you have a yarmulke. Yeah, yeah. So, you Christmas. so there, there, it was usually three of us, and we rotated stations. So uh, I would work a six-hour shift on one station and move to another station and never slept there for 18, 20 hours. Right. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, the, the phones would ring and people would just want to talk. Mm-hmm. They would just be like, yeah, I'm home alone. Uh, keep me company. And exactly. so, so, so that's why I never wanted to do a voice track. And that's also why I wanted to do a real New Year's Eve show on New Year's Eve because there are people who, who are up at that time and, and not just people who are lonely, people who are working. I mean, you know, back in the days, this is before the internet, before you had your own personal uh, computer on your on your pocket and then you can listen to anything you wanted to with earbuds. You know, people who worked, uh, governors, nurses, truck drivers, whatever the case may be, there are people who are working at night. And... Um, they want to know that they're not the only people who are working at night. And that it's not such a bad thing. I mean, the one thing I never said when I was on the air is, oh gosh, I have to work on New Year's Eve or I have to work on Christmas. Never lament about it. 
Because you're, you're talking to people who are also working Christmas and New Year's. Why are you going to lament about it if they're doing that as well? It's, it's just not right to them. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, I never, I never, um, I never said no when they asked me to work on statutory holidays, which was all the time. I never, I, I never said no. I said, you know what? People have the right. You know, people should have the right to celebrate their holidays. If it's not my holiday, then why shouldn't I work? Why shouldn't I just be there? And uh, I understand exactly what you're saying. You know, uh, there are people out there who are lonely, and they rely on radio and television to keep them company and to keep uh, uh, lonely. When I say lonely, I don't mean sitting at home, uh, sitting at home lonely. There's those people, but there are people at work who are lonely overnight. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they need company too. You're right. So the stuff file, you know, how did that come about? It's, it's an excellent program. Thank you. Um, it was, as you know, the, the show that I was doing at CJD was a three-hour uh, extravaganza that was on five days a week. And when that show came to an end, I said, uh, well, the radio station's uh, call letters aren't CPAH, so it's not up to me what they do. It's their choice to do whatever they want with their airwaves. But uh, I also said they can take away the frequency, but they can't take away my show. So the Stuff File program is just a microcosm of what I was doing on the radio every night for 20-some-odd years, or almost 20 years. Hey, if you, By the way, if you want to talk to Peter, you could call in. Peter, we're going to take the calls if, they, if people want to call in. Sure. Number to call, one 669 1292 1-877-669-1292. If you want to talk to Peter Anthony Holder, I like to call him a media legend. He's a Montreal media legend. And I was fortunate enough to work with a lot of media legends. Peter is one that's still alive, thank God. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'll be done by next week if they get the track of guests on your show. It's, 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 it's possible. I hope not. It's possible. Save the table of this for my in memoriam. Peter's show, The Stuff File, uh, airs twice on True Talk, twice a day on True Talk Radio. Uh, we, he, you air at 10 in the morning and 9 at night. Which is uh, which is which is pretty much prime time on True Talk on the True Talk Radio stream. Uh, Peter's the most listened to show on True Talk Radio. Excellent. And uh, and if you haven't heard the stuff file, you really have to check this show out. Uh, the the caliber of guests that Peter gets on his show. Uh, how do you get these people, Peter? Uh, I've, I you know sometimes I try to get people, and it's, it's usually not that difficult to line somebody up to to get on the show. But but the caliber of guests you get. You usually have to go through publicity agents to get them. Is that how you do it? Well, yes and no. It depends on the guest. It depends on the situation. I mean, um, there's almost as many different ways of getting guests as there are guests. Uh, part of it is, a, is the luck of, uh, of a 20-year track record of having you know, gotten guests for my own radio show and the fact that, I, as I said earlier, I keep... Anal retentive records, which means I keep all the contacts. I've had all the contacts that I've, I've, I've had going back over 30 years now. And um, a lot of those numbers still work. You build up a track record when you deal with somebody in PR and they are happy with the way you've dealt with said client. And usually they have more than one client. So the people I've, I've been dealing with when I was at CJD for 20 years, are still the same people I've been, I'm dealing with now. And it's, it's a situation where I get guests sometimes uh, literally falling in my lap where um, somebody in their, from their PR t uh, team would say, you know, oh, we have this particular guest for you. Would you like guest X, Y, or Z? And usually I say yes. <laughs> so it's not unusual for some guests to come my way and... Uh, I also still chase after guests. I've, I always maintain that no matter how many guests you have for a show, I still think that it's a ratio of, say, maybe four or three or four out of ten, which means for every three guests I get, seven say no. Wow. So it's still a high ratio. But, um, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, because... That book is, is, in addition to something that can generate some revenue, it's also a great calling card because when I'm talking or trying to talk to somebody uh, who, is, who doesn't know me from Adam and, and I'm trying to get them on the show, I can say I'm also the author of the book Great Conversations and list some of the people I've had on in the book and it gives me a certain amount of 
credentials that I've talked to these people, these legends through the years, and maybe uh, I'm worthy of talking to them as well. Who, who is your Who is your favorite interview? What is the most favorite interview you've done over the years? Well, that's a trick question. <laughs> I know. <laughs> when you say When you say favorite interview, are you talking about celebrities or non-celebrities? I, I'm talking about your personal favorite. My personal favorite of all time was not celebrities. Okay, why? My personal favorite of all time was, um, again, when I was doing the show, I always tried to do something a little different than the norm, such as when I worked for New Year's or when I worked for Christmas, do something that's sort of unexpected. One year for Remembrance Day, I decided I didn't want to talk to someone who went to war because the war affected people who didn't go. And for people who didn't go, there was also, as the saying goes, life goes on, even in tough times. So one year I invited three women into the studio who were war brides. Hmm. And I found these to be three of the most fascinating women I've ever met. Now, at the time I interviewed them, they were in their 70s and 80s, right? right. And these women were real pistols. I mean, all I kept thinking when I was talking to them, and I had them in the studio for an hour, all I kept thinking when I was talking to them was, my God, I don't know if I could handle these gals, these broads, and I'm saying that in, in the best sense of the word, from their, from their generation. I don't know if I could handle these gals when they were 19 years old. <laughs> because as they were in their 70s and 80s, they were so alive. They were, were, were so into experiencing what life had to offer. And these are women, I mean, don't forget, they're war brides, which means when they were in their late teens, early 20s, they met Canadian soldiers. They were in London. They were in, in uh, the Netherlands. Um, they met Canadian soldiers, they fell in love, they got married very quickly, and then they were put on ships, and they were shipped to Canada to live with in-laws, to live with new relatives that they've never met. Now, in the case of some uh, uh, war brides who came to Quebec, uh, they married French Canadians, they may have been living in a farm someplace in, in rural Quebec, living with in-laws who don't speak their language while their husband is still off of the battlefront and could easily die during war. Wow. Who does that? <laughs> you know, yeah, really. Who does that? I, I just found that talking to these women, their stories were so rich and, and, and so full. I remember, you remember the old setup of the CJD studio, right? So yeah. I'm in the booth, I've got three women sitting around the table. Two of the husbands were in master control. One of them was sitting in the chair just opposite from the, from the producer, and the other one was standing in the background. And I asked one of the wives, I said, what was it like? And this was the one who was from London. Again, you know, London has been bombed. It's the blitz. They're rationing. Uh, it's, it's war. I, so I asked her, what was a date like with your husband before you got married? When you first went out, what was a date like? And she started talking about the fact that she really loved peaches. And she couldn't get peaches because there was rationing going on. And on her date, her boyfriend gave her his peaches ration coupons. And she said this was like the best bouquet of flowers you could ever get. And while she's telling the story, she's looking through the glass at her husband, and I look over and he's looking at her, and you know that the two of them have transported back to the war, and they're reliving that moment all over again, and you could just see the love in their eyes while she was telling this story. That is so cool. Yeah. So that was my favorite interview of all time, talking to the three uh, war brides. Wow. Yeah, you, you would think that... Um you would think that uh, somebody who interviewed so many people would, would, would have a celebrity interview that was their favorite, but that is a really cool story. Well, you know, so the yeah. real people are, are the interesting... And, and it's not to say that celebrities aren't real. I mean, they are. 
And, and I've had a lot of fun talking to celebrities, too. I mean, one of the joys of talking, of doing the show, was I, I went after celebrities that I was a fan of. So it was one of the situations, I've never been a person who said, I need to get an autograph, or nowadays, in, in, you know, as we are in the 21st century, people want to get selfies. To me, a selfie or an autograph of a celebrity, all that is is proof to somebody else that you've come in contact with X, Y, or Z. And I say come in contact because that's not the same as met. Right. <laughs> right, because if you've seen people in autograph lines, they sign the autograph and they hand it, and they might not even look at the person who is, who's handed them the paper. You see the same thing with selfies. People take a selfie with somebody, and they, and they don't even make eye contact with the person who's taking the selfie, and then they're on to the next person taking a selfie. I wanted to have a connection with these people. I wanted to have the opportunity to talk to these people beyond getting... Um, an autograph or a selfie. I don't need either one of those because, again, all that is is to prove to somebody else that I come in contact with somebody else, and I don't need somebody else's approval that I met X, Y, or Z. Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm actually exactly the same way. Uh, there are no pictures of me with anybody famous. None. Uh, there's one picture I think uh, that was posted on uh, on Facebook of me interviewing Justin Trudeau. That was years right. ago. Uh, but that's the only picture I think uh, that exists of me with a famous person. And I've interviewed plenty of them, and I've, I've met plenty of them. Uh, I, I feel the same way. Uh, you know, people are people. Uh, I, I don't care, and I don't need. I, I agree with you. I don't need the approval of anybody that, or, or I don't need to prove to anybody who I am and what I've done. Um, the uh, the the book though. Do do people think that? Uh, uh, well, people. I, I know you sold a lot of these books, which is great. Uh, has anyone has anyone said to you why are you showing off that you spoke to all these people or or, or that, some negative comment like that? No, not at all. I mean, I, I many people have asked me to write a book over the years. As a matter of fact, it's 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 the very PR people I was talking about earlier that I've become friends with, whose clients I've booked over the years. It's uh, through a lot of them that they say, you know, you should write a book with all the people you talk to. And I said, no, I'm I'm, I'm not really interested. In, in telling my story because it's not about me and I don't really care to tell that story. And then uh, about two or three years ago, Yvonne Craig died, and Yvonne Craig played Batgirl in the television series Batman. Right. And I thought she was such a fascinating person when I had her on the air. She was just full of life and an absolute joy to talk to. And there was laughter in her voice with every answer she gave. And I thought, well, that's a really fun lady to talk to. She, you know, and I said to myself, I want to share that story of having a great conversation with, with Yvonne Craig, and that's what got the ball rolling in putting this book out. It takes a lot of discipline to, to publish a book. I know I've been writing a book for the last uh, four or five years, and it takes a lot of discipline to sit down and finish it off and to, to actually write it. How long did it take you to put the book together? Well, it was less than a year. First of all, I got a publisher, so... Oh, so um, that, was, that was, yeah, deadlines, yeah. Yeah, so I had deadlines to worry about, so uh, I had a publisher, and uh, that's, and, and also I, I didn't want to, because so many people said, well, you, you know, you can self-publish the book, and I maintained that uh, I was never going to self-publish the book. My feeling was, if I had to self-publish it, that, that is the equivalent of a vanity press. Um, if, if a publisher didn't want it, then I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to write it. That's just the way I felt. Uh, yeah, but sometimes self-publishing um, is just the easier way around trying to find a publisher. Publishers are uh, are, are not that easy to find, especially today when everything's digital. Um, I'm going to disagree. There, there are a lot of people out there who are publishers, and um, sometimes it makes it easier that they that it is digital. So uh, because there's not a lot of overhead. For instance, if you were to buy my book, you can go online and get it at Amazon. But you're not going to find it in a bookstore because my publisher, which is Bear Manor Media in the United States, um, they don't publish books until they're sold. Ah. So, so, so there's, there's not a backlog of, of, of titles in a warehouse somewhere. So you're never ending up in a bargain bin in, the, in, in some Barnes & Noble somewhere. Exactly. Ah, that's, uh, that's a good thing. Yeah. I, I hate those. Um, you're, by the way, you're out of stock on Amazon, which is great. Um, is it? 
One of my uh, one of one of the listeners just posted on uh, on Facebook that you're out of stock on Amazon, at least for his area. Okay, because um, I I looked just today and you can still find it, but also there's you know there's the digital version if you, if somebody has a Kindle. Uh, that's how I do all my reading, um, and it's readily available digitally. And I'm sure it'll be back in stock if you order one. It'll it'll be back in stock because if they're Absolutely. printing. If they're printing them book by book, then for sure, you know, if you order one, they're going to send you one for sure. Yep, and, and you can also get it from the, the publisher's website directly, and that's Bear Manor Media at bearmanormedia.com. Now, now, Peter, you have a great website, and your website has the archives of all your stuff file programs. Yes. How many? How many? What episode are you up to? Five hundred and thirty-seven. But who's counting? <laughs> <laughs> 537 hours of Peter Anthony Holter. It's amazing. Yeah, one show a week for uh, now 10 years. Uh, un- unbelievable. Peter, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Uh, it's, it's been a long time coming, and I really, I, really en- I really enjoyed this conversation. I really, I really appreciate you spending time with me today. My pleasure. Uh, we're going to take a little break. When we come back, the Howie Silver Show will continue right here on the True Talk Radio Network. Uh, we'll be back just after this. This is the Howie Silbiger Show on the True Talk Radio Network. Call 1-877-669-1292. And welcome back to the program. My name is Howie Silbiger. This is the Howie Silbiger Show right here on the True Talk Radio Network. You could call in the number to call one eight seven seven six six nine one two nine two. That's one eight seven seven six six nine one two nine two to get in on the conversation here on the Howie Silberger Show. I am, I am, I'm, I'm awfully upset. Uh, no, I'm very happy that Peter was on the show. Don't get me wrong; I'm not upset about that. But I'm awfully upset uh, about the story about the Jewish uh, student union rep at McGill University. Now, I don't know if you saw the story, but essentially the story is that there is a Jewish student uh, who is a rep uh, in the union, in the McGill Student Union, who, uh, who decided to go on a free trip to Israel, one of the uh, free, many free trips to Israel that are offered. She decided she was going to take a free trip to Israel and go see her country. She's Jewish. She wants to go see her country. And she was given the option by the student union. Either don't go on the trip or resign your position. You see, the McGill Student Union supports BDS, the, the, uh, the policy calling for the destruction of the state of Israel. They don't support the existence of the state of Israel. They don't support the legality of Israel as a legal country. They support the destruction of the state of Israel. Now, for those of you who are a little confused about BDS, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanction, it is a policy that was put into place. It was a, it was a, it was a concept that was put into place by uh, various people. Uh, and their idea is that because Israel can't be destroyed militarily, Israel's way too strong to be destroyed militarily, they will try to destroy Israel economically. So, boycott Israel, boycott Israeli products, boycott everything Israel. Unless, of course, uh, it's inconvenient. So, uh, if they want to use your iPhone or you want, to, uh, you want medical treatment of any kind, uh, then, then it's not convenient to boycott Israel. But when it's convenient, boycott Israel and drive Israel crazy. And this woman, this, this woman, I, I'll call her a woman, she's a university student. This woman decided that she wanted to go on a trip, a free trip to Israel. McGill University told her, well, the McGill University Students Union told her, resign or go. Resign or, or give up the trip. So the university came up with a statement today uh, condemning the student union and saying that that's not the spirit of what McGill University expects of their students and their student union. But unfortunately, on campuses, the student unions are independent. They work independently of the university. So the university has no control over the student union. All they control 
is uh, the collecting of fees for the student union. So when you and I and everybody else pays tuition, uh, they collect a certain amount of money from the uh, from people who pay tuition to pay the student union for their clubs and for all the activities the student union uh, sponsors, including the boycott, divestment, and sanction uh, aspect of the student union. So it's not resolved yet. The, uh, the student counselor hasn't made a decision on whether she's going to give up the trip or give up her seat on the student union. She's still fighting with them. The student union hasn't backed down yet. They are still insisting that the student counselor resign her position or give up the trip. When university student unions get political like this and divisive, divisively political, you end up in situations like the situation that happened at Concordia University in the early, in the, in the early 2000s. When Benjamin Netanyahu, the then foreign minister of the State of Israel, wanted to visit Concordia and give a speech at Concordia University, the student union there, the Concordia Student Union, decided that that wasn't something they were, they were going to uh, tolerate. So the executives of the Concordia Student Union got up and created a riot. They organized a riot to stop Netanyahu from speaking, and they were successful in stopping Netanyahu from speaking. They trashed university, but they stopped him from speaking. When student unions don't represent the students that they're supposed to represent, when student unions actively work against the students that they're supposed to represent, Students that they're taking money from. When personal politics, the personal politics of the student union reps, get in the way of running the student union on campus, you know you have a problem. And this is the situation right now at McGill. This, this is, has been the situation at Concordia for the last 25 years at least. And one has to wonder. I've, I've always said that anti-Zionism is not necessarily anti-Jewism. That's, that's been my mantra for a long time, that there could be people who disagree with the state of Israel who, who don't hate Jews quite possible that that happens that uh, I mean there are plenty of times that I've disagreed with the policies of the state of Israel and I sure to heck don't hate Jews so, so it's possible that there are people who disagree with the state of Israel and don't hate Jews so they're anti-Zionist but they're, they're not anti-Jewish but I would say the vast majority of people who are anti-Zionist have a little bit of anti-Jewish sentiments in them too a little bit if we take a look at the other university case of the week, uh, it was the University of Toronto, York University. There was a, uh, a giant protest at York University uh, saying to send the Jews to the gas chambers. It was supposed to be anti-Zionist, but they were calling for Jews to be sent to the gas chambers. There was also a controversy at, uh, at that university about uh, kosher food. And the uh, university, uh, the university student union once again, it's back to the student unions. The uh, university student unions decided that, uh, that by allowing kosher food, they were somehow violating their policy of boycotting Israel. Therefore, they weren't going to allow kosher food on campus. So, there are times when anti-Zionism is anti-Jewism, and there are times when it's, when it's not. And it's, it just takes evaluating the situation. So these situations on universities, I, I would say, are anti-Jewish more than anti-Zionist. And the reason I say that is, is quite simply, uh, I, I was the victim of an attack on a, on a university campus uh, just a couple of years ago. Now, if you, if you want to look it up, you can look it up. You can Google it. It's there. And uh, the, the attack basically was uh, I was walking onto campus. I was going up to, uh, to class on campus. And uh, I was approached by two guys, um, obviously Middle Eastern. And one of them said to me, uh, you got to take your, uh, your, your hat off your head. 
because I wear a yarmulke. And I said, uh, I don't think so. And he said, yeah, you got to take your hat off your head. Uh, this is an Islamic university, and you cannot, you cannot be wearing that in an Islamic university. So I stood my ground. I mean, I'm not, I'm not 15 years old. I stood my ground, and I said, There's no, you know, if you want that off my head, you are going to have to take it off. In which he took a step forward, and I took a step forward, and now we're standing nose to nose. And then he backed off. I mean, he, he would have had one chance to take it off my head, and I would have put him on the floor. But, but he backed off. This kind of harassment happens to students all the time on campus. There are plenty of Jewish students who attend Concordia and McGill who choose not to wear Jewish symbols because they don't want problems. It is a sad day when people take off their yarmulkes and put away their Megen David and hide their labels of their foods so that people don't know they're Jewish to avoid problems. How do we solve this? The, the situation, the solution is simple. It's absolutely simple. It's, it's, it's actually the simplest solution ever. And I, I've been saying this for 26 years on this program, and I will keep saying it for the next 20 years until, uh, until I don't do or until I don't do this program anymore. The situation is easily resolvable. From kindergarten straight through to the end of grade 11, every Jewish school should provide their students with self-defense courses. Period. Every synagogue should provide free self-defense courses. If we are going to choose to live in the diaspora and going to choose to live amongst people who hate us, then we must train our population to defend themselves. We must train our population, especially our young ones, to not stand down to be active, to be proactive, and to stand up to the bullies. It's the only way to solve the situation. Will it cost money? Well, everything costs money. It's to hire instructors. But it is the most essential thing to do. Instead of building fortresses, instead of building, uh, inst instead of putting, upping security every two weeks and having guards everywhere, Let's put the money where it's going to be useful. Put the money into self-defense. Let our children be able to defend themselves if they're attacked on university campuses. Let our children be able to defend themselves if they're attacked in the subway or on the streets. Until the population is ready to make Aliyah and move to Israel, and if we choose to live in the diaspora, which all of us choose to do, and we know that the people in the diaspora, especially in Quebec, are not so pro-Jewish, then it is actual suicide to not be training our population on how to defend themselves. We have a choice. It's a choice that we must make. Either we take our safety seriously, and that's not hiring guards, useless guards to stand in front of our buildings and upping the cameras and putting high-definition 360-degree cameras in our buildings. If we choose to take our safety seriously, then we must. We must. There's no choice in the matter. We must teach our children how to defend themselves, their property, and each other. If we don't do that, we're failing our children. We're failing our next generation. And once again, we will be led like cattle. God forbid. But we're not doing anything to help ourselves. 
We're not doing anything to stop this spat of anti-Jewish behavior. Where's the organized Jewish community? Where's the federations? Where are the rabbis? Where are all the organizations? Why are they not doing anything? When I got attacked at Concordia, I immediately got a phone call from the chaplain of the university, the Jewish chaplain of the university, a Lubavitcher. And he told me, please don't file a report because you're going to put other Jewish lives in danger if you file a report. Please don't do that. What a coward. What an absolute coward. Instead of saying, file a report and let's get this sucker, he said, don't file the report. Then he arranged a meeting between me and the dean of students. I went to meet with the dean of students. And I sat down with the guy and I said, hey, listen, this is an epidemic on campus that has to be dealt with. Can't just give me lip service. I don't accept lip service. This has to be dealt with. And he said, I spoke to the chaplain and we're going to put together some kind of unity event where we're going to make sure that the entire university knows that, that everybody's welcome on campus. And we'll be in touch with you when that happens. It's three years later. I'm still waiting. We've been failed by our leadership. We've been failed by the people who are supposed to be protecting us. We have been failed by them. The only way to solve the problem, the only way to change it, is to take matters into our own hands. We can't rely on our organizations to save us. We can't rely on the people who are kissing the butt of the government, the people who are kissing the butt of the Jew-haters to be standing up and protecting us. It's just not going to happen. If you send your kids to private school, if you are an executive member in a synagogue, if you are an executive director or work for a Jewish organization, It's up to you. The only solution is self-defense. Teach our children how to fight. Make it a fair fight. Give them a fighting chance of survival. I'm Howie Silberger. This is the Howie Silberger Show right here on the True Talk Radio Network. Uh, stick around. In one hour, exactly one hour from now... I'll be back with Political Hitman on Israel News Talk Radio. So in exactly one hour from now, this stream will come back on, and I'll be back with Political Hitman. Until then, have a great evening. I'm Howie Silberger. This is The Howie Silberger Show on the True Talk Radio Network.